Looking forward to our time together tonight. This is our fourth lesson, but we're actually covering chapter five. And, uh, oh, sorry, Sarah, I missed you. So, uh, so covering chapter five, which is where we actually get into the six gospel commitments. And so you have them there at the, at the top of your notes. First uh, four chapters have sort of been what I'm calling these gospel foundations. He doesn't call them that, but that's just my way of organizing it in my head. Uh, and so they... Uh, remind us how the gospel shapes our expectations. Like, I, I shouldn't be surprised when my spouse sins. This doesn't need to shock me and offend me and all these things. Uh, it also gives me reason to continue, right? There's hope. There's one who redeems our sinfulness and conforms to the image of Christ and uses these things for joy and for hope and for his glory. And so there's reason to continue for God's glory in the marriage. Uh, the gospel also teaches me what true love is. Um, it reveals my propensity for selfishness and teaches me to love sacrificially because I see what Jesus is like. I see how he loved me. So now we get into the gospel commitments. And the first one is that we will give ourselves to a regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. A regular lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. Now, this is, uh, these are two really key chapters. Chapter 5, tonight's chapter, is specifically about confession. And uh, I'm looking forward, it sounds funny, but I'm really looking forward to getting into our study tonight. I've been excited all week about it um, because uh, isn't it just exciting to tell people your faults? I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that, right? <laughs> to uh, just open up and share how you messed up. Uh, to come clean. I mean, that's just one of the most pleasant. Okay, being sarcastic, you get it. Um, now, this is not something we enjoy necessarily, but I, I really do actually want to turn, turn around the way we think about confession tonight because it is really a precious grace from God. Um, and this is how he, he lays it out in this chapter, to, to even, even know that we did sin, right? Think about our existence before Christ, um, when the only inklings we had of our sin was our conscience, right? Uh, that, that both believers and unbelievers have. And even there, I can sear my conscience and I can be living in sin and you know, not even fully realizing it. But then God opens our eyes to see the truth. And so that in itself is a gift. He's involved in our lives. He's engaged. He's helping us grow to do right and to live right. So before I get ahead of myself, that's one of the goals tonight, is to just even see confession and repentance with a sense of uh, gratitude and joy. Um, not pleasant at first when we have to come clean with what it is, but ultimately uh, an evidence of God's grace in our lives. So he builds the case at the beginning of the chapter, why this is so important. On page um, 77, he says this. I thought this was a neat quote. You simply can't continually rehearse in your heart all someone's perceived wrongs against you and grow in affection toward him or her. Okay? You can't argue to yourself daily that the person you live with is the chief cause of the wrongs that you do and want to move closer to them, right? So for us to truly be one flesh, right, a husband and wife, to live in unity, 
There has to be confession and forgiveness. We can't be holding things against each other. Most married individuals, when asked what's wrong with their marriage, immediately think of their spouse. And this has been our malady from the beginning. Think back to Genesis 3, when God enters the scene and kind of asks the question, okay, what happened? What's going on here? And then Adam finally pipes up. Oh, it was the woman you gave me, right? So he's, now he's blamed Eve and God for what happened, right? There's no, there's no coming clean there. It's completely blame shifting. So this is our, this is our tendency to focus on the other person. Uh, and often in our circles, the way we do this is we start with the acknowledgement that we're not perfect, right? So maybe you've heard yourself say something like this. Okay, I didn't handle that perfectly, but they, right? Well, just pause and reflect on what we're, what we're doing there, okay? We're acknowledging that I fell short of God's perfection. That's the definition of sin, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So I'm acknowledging that I've sinned, but I'm blowing right past my sin and, and, and doing anything to deal with it, to confess it, to repent of it, and focusing right on the other person. So in some ways, it's almost worse than not even knowing that I sinned, because what I'm doing is I'm Acknowledging that I sinned and then refusing to do anything about it except focus on what my spouse has done, right? Okay, so I didn't handle it perfectly, but you've got to hear what they did. They're the real issue here. Whoa, 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 let's back up. Let's start with that phrase, you didn't handle it perfectly. Let's talk about that. What did you do wrong? That's where God wants to start in my heart, right? So this is, this is big for us, and this is so, such a temptation to focus on others instead of ourselves. So he, he says on pages 78 and 79, he talks about what he calls the cycle of blame. And the more we point the finger at the spouse, the more we feel self-righteous because the more we see the things that they're doing wrong and we just kind of affirm our perspective. Oh, there it is again. There they did it again. There they did it again. Well, yeah, they're, they're a sinner, right? So well, this is what we do. We keep focusing on what they do wrong and then we just kind of build ourselves up in our own righteousness. Well, I don't act like that, right? I may have done it four times today, but they did it six times today. So I'm better than her, right? And so we build our case for ourselves and it, we just continue to drive a wedge between the two of us. So he says this on page 78. The couple is stuck in a cycle of repeating the same things over and over again. They repeat the same misunderstandings. They rehearse and re-rehearse the same arguments. They repeat the same wrongs. Again and again, things are not resolved. They want to be different, but they don't know how to break free, and they don't seem willing to do the one thing that makes change possible, confess. Couples tell themselves they will do better. The promise to spend more time together, to pray together, to talk more, but it's not long before the promises fade and they're in the same place again. All their commitments to change have been subverted by the one thing they seem unwilling to do. Take the focus off of the other and put it on themselves. No change takes place in a marriage that does not begin with confession. Confession is the doorway to growth and change in your relationship. Without it, you are relegated to a cycle of repeated and deepening patterns of misunderstanding, wrong, and conflict. With it, with confession, the future is bright and hopeful no matter how big the issues that you are facing. 
This draws us back again to the gospel. You want to think about the importance of confession in a horizontal relationship. Think about it in terms of the gospel. So here's a little discussion question. How does the gospel remind us of both the power and the importance of confession or repentance? How does the gospel remind us of both the power and the importance of confession and repentance? Yeah. I'm just thinking of like the ABC of the gospel or whatever. Yeah. A would be to admit that you're a sinner. And so by doing that, it puts you in a place of humility and acknowledging that you listen here. Yeah. Yep. So to even get started in accepting the gospel, I've got to admit that there's a problem. I've got to acknowledge my sin and turn to the Lord. Right. Good. What happens when we confess and repent? Forgiveness. forgiveness. Yeah. And what comes with that forgiveness? Restoration. Restoration. Good. What else? What else does God do for us in the gospel? Peace. Peace with Him. Yeah. Makes us a new creation. We're a new creation, right? He reconciles us, yeah. Community. Community, right. Joined with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ, yeah. Eternal life, hope, joy, right? Indwelling of the Spirit. I mean, you name it. So what is the turning point in all of that when we confess our sins, trust in Christ? That turn, that transition from Going my own way to trusting in Christ, that's confession and repentance. That's turning to God. And it begins with that admission, I have done wrong, I was wrong, I'm dead, you're right, you have life, I trust in you. And that changes everything, right? And that's where life comes from in our relationship with God, and so too in our marriages, um, it's what brings restoration and healing and change, and yet it's the thing we avoid like the plague. Uh, and I'll talk about what that looks like, because sometimes we think we're not avoiding it, but we do end up still avoiding it. Or I do, anyway. So the gospel reminds me of God's mercy, that when a sinner comes to him, he's a merciful God. In fact, he sent his son to die for me before I had any inclination to even admit that I was a sinner, right? I was just an enemy, a rebel, right? And God showed his kindness and mercy. So I know what he's like. I know that he loves me and that he forgives sinners who turn to him. Uh, so the gospel just reminds us the importance of um, repentance and it guarantees our forgiveness with God. There's no question how God will respond to our confession. There's, there's always restoration. He never, ever turns his face on us because of Christ. So, number one there in your notes tonight, restoration and change come through repentance. They come through repentance. Go ahead and open, oops. There we go. Go ahead and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 
And just follow along as I read verses 9 through 11. This is Paul writing to the Corinthians who had sinned and he rebuked them. Okay, and this is kind of his summary of that. Verse, eight, uh, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So a few things we notice about repentance here. Okay, number one, repentance involves a change of heart, sorrow. They, when they saw their sin, it wasn't just move past it and let's talk about somebody else's sin it was, whoa, there's sin in my life that God just helped me to see. That's the very thing that put Christ on the cross. I need to deal with this. I need to make this right. And so there's a change of heart, sorrow of heart over my sin. Secondly, there's a change of mind. My thinking changes. Unlike the sorrow of the world, which just keeps going back to the same thing, oh, sorry, sorry. Sorry that happened, and then you kind of do it again. Godly sorrow, repentance, involves a change of thinking. I'm, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to go after something else. I'm not going to go after this anymore. Number three, it, revol it involves a change of direction. My actions change. Verse 11 describes this just so blatantly. I mean, those words are so powerful. What vehement desire and diligence and clearing of yourselves and so on and so forth. I mean, these... These believers were passionate about living differently because Paul had pointed out where they were off and they wanted to live right. And so genuine repentance is a work of God through correction. When God brings correction into our lives, sometimes through the word, sometimes through brothers and sisters in Christ, it is God who grants repentance. That's what 2 Timothy 2.25 says. And so as I see the sin in my life, I beg God to help me grow and change and live differently as a result. It's a turning from my sin and turning to the Lord. In fact, that can be a helpful way to think of the Christian life. Am I facing God? We've talked about this before, but in the Christian life, uh, there's, you know, before salvation, God is facing away from us, right? He can't look upon our sin uh, he, he can't bear it, right? He's a holy God. We're sinful people. And we're faced away from God, rebels, wanting to do our own thing. We want to have nothing to do with God. Well, the work of salvation, the payment of Christ on the cross, provides for God to turn his face to us. And then in salvation, when we trust in Christ, we turn our face to God. And finally, there's peace and unity and reconciliation. We're hidden in Christ. So the Father never will turn him, himself away from us again because he always forever sees the righteousness of his son and looks upon us with love and grace and mercy. However, even as believers, we can turn our back on God. Those times when we know what's right and choose to do what we want instead, what we're doing, though we don't like to think of it this way, what we're doing is we're telling God, no, 
I think my way is better. I'm going to do what I want instead of what you want. And so we turn our backs. Now, that we praise God for our salvation in Christ because God doesn't put us down at that moment. He doesn't squash us and kill us. He could. We deserve it. But he sees us in Christ and he comes after us in love. His face has never turned away from us. As a father, he pursues us until in confession we turn back to him. That's what confession is. That's what repentance is. It's not, you know, it's not that Christ dies all over again or, or he has to pay for our sins all over again. It's that process of us, well, I sinned, which means I turned my back on God. Now I turn back to him and I face him. Face him. We'll come back to that picture, but that's helpful for us as we think about what confession and repentance is. Now, in the chapter, he begins to talk about the grace of uh, confession. And this is where we want to begin to see confession in more of a positive light uh, than the negative light we often see it. So, first he points out that it is a grace... Oh, sorry, there it is. It is a grace to know right from wrong. It is a grace to know right from wrong. And, of course, you're familiar with these verses in James... In uh, 22 through 25, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks in the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So it's a blessing to have the word of God and to be able to read it and to know it and to see my reflection in the mirror, right? We don't always like that. It's embarrassing. Oh, man, I had toothpaste on my face the whole day, right? I, but far better to know it so I can wash it off. I can clean it. I can get right. That's what confession is like. When, when God helps us see our sin, it's a gift to know right from wrong. Number two, it's a grace to understand the concept of indwelling sin, Matthew 15, 18 through 20 is that section of verses where uh, the Pharisees are all caught up in the fact the disciples haven't washed their hands with the, the ritual cleansing. This is not about like COVID and soap and all that. This is ritual Jewish cleansing before uh, they would partake of a special meal. And the disciples hadn't done it according to their tradition. And so they begin to attack them. And Jesus says, no, no, no. it's not the washing of hands or the not washing of hands that creates impurity. It's what comes out of the heart that creates impurity. Paul Tripp says this on page 80. One of the most tempting fallacies for us and for every human being in this fallen world is to believe that our greatest problems exist outside of us rather than inside of us. The Bible calls us to confess that the greatest, deepest, most abiding problem each one of us faces is inside. So, not my spouse not my circumstances, my heart. Right. Next, it's a grace to have a properly functioning conscience. It's a grace to have a properly functioning conscience. Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. To have a tender conscience that is aware of sin is a gift, in fact. The Bible speaks of the possibility of hardening our hearts. In fact, this is one of the main things Jesus brings against the Pharisees. 
It's not that they're actually righteous. It's that they've hardened their hearts and don't see their unrighteousness. This is one of the great dangers of living as a Christian for years. We can begin to harden our hearts to the little things. We stop seeing our areas of sin, right? You can actually go through a day or a week and think, you know what? I, I don't think I sinned this week, right? Have you ever had a thought like that? When we think things like that, there's two options. Either it's true and I'm completely like Jesus, or it's not true and I'm blind to something in my life, right? 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we lie. <laughs> so the prayer of a mature Christian is, oh Lord, I don't see my sin today, which doesn't mean it's not there means I'm blind to it. Open my eyes. Help me to see where you want me to become more like Jesus today. Because it's always there. It's always there. And it's a grace to have a conscience that helps us to see those things. Next one. Number four. It is only grace that protects us from self-righteousness. Okay, so these two are kind of uh, connected. We suffer from a degree of spiritual blindness. We do not see ourselves with accuracy. And we tend to see the weaknesses and failures of our spouse with greater accuracy. We begin to think of ourselves as more righteous than our husband or wife. For whatever reason, this is just part of having a sin nature. We are particularly in tune to the sins of others, right? You could probably think of ways your spouse has sinned or fallen short of Christ in the last day or week. You could probably think of a few other people in the church who have maybe hurt you or sinned against you or you saw them do something and you have, ooh, they really need to grow in this area, right? We are like super powered in our ability to pick other people apart and completely blind to it in our own lives. And that is self-righteousness. The first place the Lord wants us to look is into our own hearts. Lord, change me. I need to grow. God is so gentle with us. He often helps us with only one or two things at a time. That doesn't mean I don't have more than one or two things to work on. Uh, the point is, if he's brought something to my attention, the God of the sovereign universe has brought one thing up in my life and said, okay, Lance, here's what we're going to work on this week even though there's 500 million things that we need to work on this week, God brings one. Now think of what it means then when I just say, okay, I'm not perfect, but she, I just blow right past what God in his gentle kindness wanted to work on in my heart this week. The one thing that he kindly brought up, I'm like, yeah, yeah come on, it's not that big a deal. Well, God thinks it is. Right? He put Christ on the cross, so... Kind of a big deal. Number five, it's a grace to see ourselves with accuracy. <laughs> Here he describes his own counseling experience, which was kind of humorous, so I thought it would be a fun quote to read. He says on page 83, I've been amazed to watch an angry husband angrily declare that he is not angry. I've been surprised to see a controlling husband and wife control a conversation in order to convince me that they are not controlling. 
I have watched a bitter spouse bitterly refuse the thought that she might be bitter. In each instance, they would listen to what I had to say and then lay out for me the evidence that my assessment was wrong. We so often blind ourselves to what's really going on. And people come in to help us, and we immediately put walls up, immediately begin getting defensive. Well, you don't understand. <laughs> Let me share with you the justifications that I've been running around through my head for a while when God was trying to convict me of this too. Right? We, we, just, we lay out our, our defense argument against what God is trying to do. Number six, it's a grace. Did you get all this from the previous page? Accuracy? Okay. It's a grace to see, excuse me, to listen and consider criticism and rebuke. Proverbs 15, 31 through 33 says this, The ear that hears the rebukes of life will abide among the wise. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul. But he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. And before honor is humility. So we're wise to listen to correction, to consider what people say. And so there on page uh, 119, or no, excuse me, 84, I think it is, uh, he talks about a couple of things that are helpful. He first of all mentions to learn, oh man, I'm behind on the, he talks about learning the humility of approachability. Are you an approachable person? Would your brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe not even thinking about your spouse, what about your brothers and sisters in Christ in church? Would they be afraid to, to, to point out to you an area that you have sinned? Are you an approachable person? Do you have the kind of humility that welcomes input and correction? Or are you quick to defend? And when people think, oh, man, I, they really would be helped if I shared this with them, but... Oh, I don't know how they're going to respond, right? Learn the humility of approachability to welcome input from people. Learn the importance of self-examination so that when people bring that input, I'm willing, before my inner lawyer comes out at all, well, it could have been that because this happened and this was the way the circumstances were going and you've got to understand, they had said this to me, you know, and we have all these arguments for why the, the, the input is wrong. But to pause and examine myself for a little bit. Okay, hold on. Somebody with much greater clarity on my life than me, I'm blind to things. Somebody else just pointed something out. They, they told me I have toothpaste on my face or pride in my soul, whatever the case may be. I got to consider here. Is there truth to this? And so we examine, we go to the Lord, we, we search the scriptures. Lord, is this right? I look in the mirror of God's word and see, ah, is there really toothpaste there? Oh, yes, there is a huge smudge there. So if we don't take that step of self-examination, we almost just always blow right past it. When we do that, we can look for both mistakes and sins. Now, there's a, there's a slight difference there. And both of these are important to understand in marriage. Sin is against God. It's when we break His moral law, right? And even when we sin against our spouse, it's important to remember, I have first and foremost sinned against God. He's the Holy One. He's my judge. 
and I take care of it with him first. That's sin. I've broken God's moral law. There are also mistakes that we make, right? I step on my wife's toe accidentally, right? To do it on purposely would be sin. Okay, so I make a mistake, right? I back up. Oh, oh, wow, sorry, right? So there may be ways that you have hurt your spouse, even though you didn't intend to. Those are important to at least express regret over them. Oh, yeah, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a sin, but that also doesn't mean we have to get up all defensive about ourselves. Well, get over it. I didn't mean to. Come on. I stepped on your toe. I'm really, really sorry. Can I help make it right? Let me get you some ice. Whatever. You know. Call the tow truck. There you go. Okay. Yeah. You're welcome. Seeing if you're awake. Next, beware of minimizing and blame shifting. When we have sinned, our tendency is to say, hey, look, it was just a mistake. It was an error on my part. I probably shouldn't have done that. Right? These little phrases that soften everything. Say it the way God would say it. Right? And if it put Christ on the cross, it probably isn't just a, well, you probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> no, it's sin. Right? Learn to say the word as you confess. Blame shifting. Right? We've talked about this one a little bit. Sure, I'm not perfect. I made some mistakes, but I don't think their actions can be overlooked. They started the whole thing. They bear the majority of the fault. Listen to the input of others. Even if it comes to you in a sinful way, consider your own heart. Who are you serving? What were you ruling? What needs to happen in your vertical relationship with God? Finally, learn the courage of loving honesty. Had that one already. Learn the courage of loving honesty. There are times when we need to listen. There are times when we need to speak. And God may want to use you in your relationship with your spouse to help them, to gently help them see their sin. Learn to speak lovingly and gently. Number seven, it is a grace not to be paralyzed by regret. This is really insightful on his part. Listen to what he says here on pages 84 and 85. Confession not only calls us to look at ourselves in the present, but it also calls us to access the past. If you're a husband who has been married for seven years and are now beginning to face the fact that you are an angry man, then you have to be willing to look at the harvest that your anger has produced over those years. If you are a bitter wife who in bitterness has withdrawn into a protective shell, then you have to face not only your present state of withdrawal, but how that bitterness has impacted the people around you during your withdrawal. The reason he points this out is that sometimes the, the size of our sin keeps us from coming clean, from, from confessing, from making these things right. Because we look back and we say, oh my goodness, if this is true, this has been going on for years, and I've hurt countless people by it and I, I don't even think I could go to all of them and make this right like how am I supposed to bear this I don't know if you've ever felt that way I have felt that way and so the regrets of the past of years of doing something can keep us sometimes from coming clean and making something right but here's where the gospel is so helpful to us again remember 
your evil deeds cannot thwart the good plan of God. Like Joseph's brothers, God said, but, or Joseph said, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. God knew you would act this way. He knew you would act this way for seven years or however long it was. He still chose to love you. Right? He knew you would have seven years or 10 years or 15 years of resistance to him. And he still chose to send Jesus to die for you. He loves you. And for whatever reason, he chose today, after 15 years, to bring you to repentance over that thing. Don't let those 15 years keep you from repenting. Because God is sovereign over all those years. And he could not have let your evil deeds have thwarted his good plan. And he's called you today to be cleansed and to face him and to be right with God. How precious is that? How kind is our God? He still chose to love us and save us and is using even our sinfulness for good. So don't be paralyzed by regret. Come to Christ. Number eight, it is a grace to know that we can face our wrongs because Christ has carried our guilt and shame. He took it, right? So those 15 years or whatever it is that you have of regret, Christ took that shame, right? He says this, uh, Paul says this on page 86. Uh, Paul Tripp, not the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Jesus took our shame, hanging in public, numbered with the criminals. He took our guilt by taking our sin on himself and paying the price for it, death. He did this even though he had no reason for either shame or guilt because he was a perfect man. It was done for us. Why? So guilt and shame would not hold us so that, the, uh, so that in the encouragement of celebratory faith, we would quit hiding, quit excusing, quit blaming, and quit rising to our own defense so that we could be unafraid of saying, you are right, I am wrong, and I need your forgiveness. See, Jesus took our shame. He bore it all. He paid the punishment for it to free us to turn back to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 So that's the grace of confession. It really is a beautiful thing to bring it out into the light and have it forgiven and done with and gone, right? It's a joy. It's a blessing to clean the toothpaste off the face. And a day by day by day, little and little and little become more like Jesus Christ. All right, so then he has these daily habits of confession. We're going to go through these quickly. Because they parallel what we've already talked about. First of all, we will be lovingly honest Lovingly honest. At times, this means we talk to our spouse about their sin, but we need to remember Jesus' instructions in Matthew 7, 1 through 4-ish. Uh, we're, we're not judges in the relationship, right? God has an appointed judge of the universe, and it's not me. God has an appointed judge for my spouse, and it's not me. He's placed me in the relationship as helper, fellow sinner, and the only way I earn the right to help in my spouse's life is if I take the log out of my own eye first. 
right? So that has to happen. No authority to help my spouse unless I take the log out first. And so we got to begin there. Number two, we will be humble when exposed. Humble when exposed. Look, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitfully or desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? We've got to acknowledge that I could be blind to something. So when our spouse comes to us and says, Hey, sweetheart, i got a concern. Or maybe they don't even say it in a very nice way. Who cares? Listen with humility because I'm probably blind to something in my life. Number three, we will not excuse. Learn to shut down your inner lawyer. Listen to understand what they're saying. Ask clarifying questions. Get more information. Shut down the voice inside your head that's saying, well, you've done the same thing, right? Am I the only one that has that voice? All right. But anyway. Number four, we will be quick to admit wrongs. Quick to admit wrongs. Ephesians 4.26 is the verse where we read, do not let the sun go down in your wrath. The idea is that we're not just letting these things go. We're talking about it. We're taking care of it. Uh, these things shouldn't just go day after day after day. If they have, it's okay. Deal with it today. <laughs> right? Take care of it. When the Lord brings it up in your mind, it's time to deal with it. Uh, often in marriages, we sort of just base things on whether things feel okay, right? Like we're making life happen to a degree, you know, we can get places, we can do things, we can get things done, we're talking here and there, so uh, yeah, we must be okay. And that's often how we assess whether, you know, we need to talk. Uh, but confession is based not on whether things feel okay, whether we're making it happen. It's a question of whether I've sinned against God. And if I have, then I need to confess, right? It's not a question of whether she was hurt by it, whether she's responding to me, giving signals that I've sinned against her. No, no, no. It's not about any of those things. It's about whether I've sinned against God and it's hurt her, and so therefore I need to confess. I need to make it right. Uh, so quick to admit wrongs. Number five, we will listen and examine when somebody brings something to us, we consider it. We hold back our response. We listen and examine. We will greet confession with encouragement. So when our spouse confesses, our tendency uh, will be to want the person who has hurt us to hurt in the same way that we have been hurt. Right? So they, conf they come to us with some confession. We say, finally! Right? Yeah, and we just want to jab them so they feel what we've been feeling all this time. We want the other to feel the sting as well. The way to freedom from that is to remember that sin is against God, and Christ is the one who felt my pain, and he does not needle me back, right? Though I literally hurt and killed him with my sin, God doesn't punish me when I come to him in confession. He doesn't make me feel the pain that I caused the Lord Jesus Christ. He welcomes me and forgives me. And so that's what we offer to our spouses as well. We will be patient, persevering, and gentle in the face of wrong. And then we will not return to the past. Again, this is one of the things that often comes up in our heads. Oh, you say sorry now, but this is the fifth time it's happened this week, so, <laughs> right? We bring it up. We bring up the past. 
And finally, we were put our hope in Christ. Now, that's where he ends the chapter. Uh, I added number 10. We will actually confess our sin. He sort of says that in number 4, we'll admit our wrongs. But I wanted to think briefly about you, uh, with you, about what confession is. Confession literally means to agree, to agree with God about something. So that I'm saying something in the way that God would say it. Right? I'm not softening it, I'm not pulling it back, I'm not hiding it, I'm not twisting it. If God were to give report on what I did, would my report match God's report? That's the question. That's what confession is. We turn and agree with God again. And so Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, has these seven A's of confession, and they're super helpful. So I'm going to go through them really fast just to keep them in mind. First of all, address everyone involved. Sin is against God. We understand that. But often when I sin against God, it hurts people, right? So who has my sin affected? Who have I touched? Who have I hurt? Who has this involved? And I need to address all those people. Part of the reason that's important is because our role, our mission, is to be ambassadors for Christ. And so if I have shown people what Jesus is not like, <laughs> I need to make sure they understand that was not Jesus, that was me, right? Number two, avoid if, but, and maybe. These are just, you know, they soften our confession. Well, perhaps I was wrong. Maybe I should have tried harder. Possibly I should have waited to hear your side of the story. I guess I was wrong when I said those critical things, right? So we just, it just softens it. Just say it the way God would say it. Admit specifically. Deal with your heart, right? I shouldn't have said those words, and I said them because I was worshiping my desires instead of submitting to God. Right? Whatever the scenario may be, right? Go to the heart, not just the outward action. Acknowledge the hurt. This is where sometimes it takes some thought. I, I like to just resolve things as fast as possible. Oh, sorry, would you forgive me? And Carrie gently helps me think through things a little bit. Like, okay... Yes, but have you thought about this at all? Do you understand what happened, right? Okay, well, I'll think about it a little more, <laughs> right? So think about it some more. You realize, oh, right? The way I spoke about you in front of that person embarrassed you or whatever, right? And so I begin to see how she's feeling, acknowledging her hurt in it. Accept the consequences. Hey, how can I make this right? What, what can I do? Is there some, some way that I can, I can uh, repay you or make this up? or Alter your behavior. I mean, we saw that in 2 Corinthians 7, right? That they were sorry in a godly manner and it led to repentance and passion about changing. Think about this for a moment. If it really is the sovereign God of the universe who has brought this one thing to light out of the billions in your life, that he wants to make you more like Jesus. And he comes to me and he gently says, Lance, here it is. Here's what you did. You were impatient. I want you to work on this, right? That just calls for me to then just passionately work on that. Okay, Lord, I see it. I'm going to confess it to my wife. I'm going to seek her forgiveness. I'm confessing it to you. I'm going to seek your forgiveness. I'm going to work on growing in this area. I'm going to think about 
patience. I'm going to memorize some scripture that will help me remember how to be more patient. I'm going to ask people to give input in my life when they see me being impatient, right? If God is trying to make me more like Jesus, there's no reason for me to just kind of treat this flippantly. Yeah, I, I need to be more patient, but she, right? no. What is God doing in my life? Alter my behavior. Finally, ask for forgiveness and give time. Sometimes it takes people time. All right, last few blanks. Did you get those on the last one? Sorry. Ask for forgiveness. You get it? Okay. We will commit to growth and change. Help each other. Right? This is going to be one of the commitments later in the study. But one of the goals in marriage is that we're both changing. The goal is not to reach like a status quo where, you know, it's just always the same and normal and we're getting along and everything's okay. Now, the goal is constant change, constant growth. How are we helping each other grow? God is eager to help us grow and change, and we cooperate with God in this process and help each other. All right. I went long. Sorry about that. Thank you for your good attention tonight. And... Remember the joy of the gospel, God's forgiveness. When we come to him, he never casts us out. And that's how we treat our spouses. Okay? You are dismissed.